I want to talk to you about dying in today's world. And I want to really look at what happens as the light fades. Go back in time to how things were, think about today, and then think about how things are going to be in the next couple of decades. Some of you will have been born before the NHS. Forgive me, but looking round the room, that's a guess. I'm not saying everybody was. But actually, Nyvevan really revolutionised, as we all know, healthcare completely, because up until that time, there were people who just could not access care at all. The mortality rates were awful, and it was his experience in Tredegar in South Wales that he wanted to Tredegarise the whole of the UK by introducing the NHS, something that we have today and I fear that we're beginning to undervalue. We're great at criticising it, but not realising what life would be like without it. But this is a personal journey because I was born just after the NHS came in, so I really am a product of Nye Bevan's vision. I just want to look for a moment, though, at deaths in the last 100 years, because if we come over here... Look at all the people dying of infection. These were all different infections. Infection was a massive, massive killer. And then round about the end of the war, things began to change. Who wants to volunteer why they changed? Somebody shout it out. Which one? Penicillin. One antibiotic. Magic. And then, of course, heart disease came up and we got road traffic accidents and so on emerging. And now look at this. Sadly, self-harm, accidental self-poisonings and so on have been going up. There's a dramatic change. This was in men. And we see a similar pattern in women, except that a lot of these are breast cancer. So there is a lot changing in our society. And if we look at when the NHS came in, it's about here, halfway along the line. Okay, so we've already experienced just in our lifetimes big changes in the way that people develop disease and then, of course, go on to die. When I was a child, tuberculosis was rife. How many of you in this audience have had TB? Gosh, nobody. I'm surprised. There were survivors, even then. Uh, these cavitating lesions at the top of the lung. But look at this from before the NHS. Isn't it terrible to have to tell parents to not comfort their dying children or comfort their children if they were dying because of the risk of infection? And these are the little bugs, tuberculosis, and then, of course, along came anti-tuberculous therapy. Amazing. But now what are we seeing? Resistance. Resistance to anti-tuberculous therapy. People dying of it. We've had doctors dying from treating patients and catching the drug-resistant tuberculosis from them. Things are changing fast. And the main reservoirs seem to be coming from the in Indian uh, sort of region and from the Russian, Eastern European region. 
And when I was a child, I remember polio. I remember very clearly because a friend of mine got polio. And I have a friend who still is alive, but of course lame as a result of polio because there weren't vaccines then. We didn't know what was going on. So death was very different. And I went to medical school back in 1967. And to be honest, we really didn't know how to look after dying patients. I look back with horror at what we didn't do then, what we didn't know how to do. We were giving short-acting pain relief in low doses and then having too long an interval between doses. I mean, it was just awful. When I look back on it, we did not have a clue. But at the same time, in 1967, Cicely Saunders started St Christopher's Hospice and she took a scientific approach to care of the dying and researched extensively. And I want to quote from her because I think this is an incredibly important uh, fundamental philosophy behind all that we've done in palliative care. You matter because you are you and you matter to the last moment of your life. We will do all we can not only to help you die peacefully but also live until you die. And it has been following that example that I eventually decided to stop being a GP, learn more from Sicily and from others and be part of the movement that then became palliative medicine. Sicily described total pain. In all the patients I've seen when they've had pain that hasn't been controlled and people have said, oh, it's emotional or it's spiritual. No, there's always been a physical cause. Sometimes people haven't found it for a bit. We've had to reinvestigate to find the cause so that we can treat that. But people's pain experience is made vastly worse by distress, emotional distress, social distress, worries. It is expensive to be ill. Financially, it can be crippling to be ill. And we have an NHS. Think about parts of the world where there is no health service, where in America, for example, people still go bankrupt just in providing care for somebody. And those spiritual concerns, that's not religion. That's about why me? What have I done to deserve it? And it may be a crisis of faith one way or the other. All those questions to which there really isn't an answer. Let me give you a concrete example. One patient who we admitted because she was on over a gram, that's over a thousand milligrams of morphine a day, and appeared to be in huge distress. Within a few days, just letting her talk about all the awful things that had happened in her life and how she felt about them all, her drug requirements fell to 30 twice a day going down from over a 1,000. And it was because we dealt with these domains, she still had her physical pain and she still needed it treated. But her total pain had been overwhelming. Lots is said about morphine and it's getting a bad name because of opioid abuse in America. And it worries me because actually it's a brilliant drug if you're in pain. It's my desert island 
if, if I had one thing on a desert island, I'd ask for lots of morphine so that I could at least have some pain relief when I'd fallen over, hurt myself, but I could still forage for food or water until things healed a bit. Um, but what do we do? We titrate up the dose to get above the pain threshold and below the level of toxicity. And toxicity starts with you being drowsy. Your respiratory rate gradually slows as you get higher and higher in the toxic range and then slows to the point that it becomes life-threatening. But as soon as we see toxicity, drop the dose back down into the range to have pain relief. And then some people need other things as well. But I haven't got time in this lecture to talk to you about all of the complex things in the armamentarium to control pain. But what do people die of around the world today? I showed you those pictures of infection. Well, HIV and other infections are a massive killer still in many parts of the world. But look at the Western world here, up here. Dark blue, we're dying of cancers. That's the biggie. There's a huge difference, isn't there, between these two maps, cancer and HIV, and that's from the World Health Organization. But what about morphine availability? I think this graph is shameful. Look at the sliver that's Africa, South America, all these countries, and then the bloated, bloated availability in some others. 80% of the world's dying have no access to morphine, and 6% of those are children. We have people dying around the world with no pain relief whatsoever, and our campaigns on that are horribly quiet, shamefully quiet. So in our developed world, what is the job that I do? It's the science of helping people as they die. And for most people, dying is not the sudden presence of death. It's not something sudden and dramatic, but a gentle absence of life. I'm sure every one of you can remember somebody who you love dearly and who has died. And you may remember their dying. It may have been a long time ago, back in those awful days when we just hadn't got a clue what to do. It may have been more recent. It may be that you were with them in a road accident. It may be it was a sudden death or whatever. We all carry those memories. But what we're striving to do in palliative care is to make sure that people die gently and peacefully in a dignified way cared for and knowing that we value them to the last moment of their lives. So what happens in that gentle death? And people often don't talk about it. So I just want to run through the stages of what I see in thousands of people as they're dying. They become increasingly weary. They become tired. They just don't have the energy. And then sometimes they have a final burst of energy one, two days before they die. It's as if suddenly they have a final release of all that energy that's pent up, but it doesn't last long. And they undertake activities that people are really surprised and they thought they would never be able to do. 
I had one patient who finished writing a book. He wrote the last chapter of a book and then died two days later. Becoming drowsy and weak and just gently slipping into a coma, breathing slows. It may sound bubbly and that's something that we need to address early and not wait until it's got bubbly. And breathing becomes shallower and pulse weakens. People's colour changes a bit. They may go pale, a little bit blotchy. Heart stops, breathing stops. And they've slipped away, that irreversible moment. And then after a few hours, their body will have changed and look different as the different processes associated with death itself and the beginning of decay set in. But just going back to think about that for a moment, I hope you can see why it's so awful if people talk about going to sleep, talking about to children about, oh, he fell asleep and then died. Many children who've been told that are frightened of going to bed and frightened of going to sleep. They're frightened that when the surviving parent goes to bed and goes to sleep, they might not wake up again. We have to be honest and frank and clear. This isn't about going to sleep. It's about slipping into a coma and slipping out of life. But I'm afraid we're not very good at recognising when death is imminent. There's a recent paper I've just found which showed that in a cancer centre, actually all the it was recognised in a cohort of patients, everyone recognised those who, who were dying imminently. But in a general hospital, it was only two-thirds and that meant about a third of patients and their families may well have been deprived of the ability to have the family warned. They may well have not had the appropriate care that they need. They may have had inappropriate interventions pursued. We need to get better at recognising when somebody is that in that irreversible stage of dying and talk openly and frankly about it and demystify it. This is the hospice that I opened in 1987, before palliative medicine became a specialty, and I was the first consultant in Wales. And so I, it was down to me to kind of run this place and make it all happen. And that's been a fantastic privilege in life. And fast forwarding now from 2008, we've had a major strategy in Wales to improve things. And we've had for a long time, but now we've really brought it into being, a principle that there must be good access to end-of-life care 24-7. We cannot have specialist services only available 9 to 5, Monday to Friday, because death does not respect the clock or the calendar. And there has to be fair provision, irrespective of where you are, because a crisis can happen to anybody at any time. And it all has to be closely integrated with other providers. So across Wales, if we take that map, I hope you're all familiar with our wonderful country now. Um, wherever you are, if you're living on the coast down here in beautiful Pembrokeshire, or in an isolated rural community, or in the valleys, or in our city centre, if you need care, you deserve care. And you deserve to be able to access what you need. And if you have complicated disease, we should not have a postcode lottery. 
So we've really tried to get rid of that in Wales. And why? Because we want everybody to be able to have that gap that disease imposes, that deficit in their quality of life closed. Help them reset their hopes and aspirations better towards reality and improve reality so that gap is closed, that deficit is closed. And sometimes that might mean encouraging them. For example, they may have a family wedding. Well, it might be wise to bring it forward. The fastest I've been able to um, arrange a wedding from start to finish was two and a half hours. Uh, that really was bringing it forwards. But that was a lady who wanted to legitimise her five children. So um, one of the nurses ran home, brought in her wedding dress because she thought she was about the same size as this patient. Another one ran up to Peacock's, the store, and bought five little dresses of the five different sizes so that the five children could be bridesmaids. Uh, we found a bottle of sherry, somebody found a bottle of bubbly, uh, we got a cake, and the difficulty was getting her brother out of prison. Um, <laughs> but the prison were extremely helpful, and uh, he came with a prison officer who actually agreed to uh, not have him shackled during their wedding. Um, and we got the whole thing arranged. That was a bit extreme in terms of trying to improve things, but basically it's this principle all the time of improving quality of life. And we have to be involved early, and that's why we have to be involved, and we are in the Cancer Centre completely integrated, because when problems arise here, we've still got time to improve things. If you only focus on the dying bit you miss out on months or sometimes years when people's quality of life can be improved, when you can do things differently. And you need to be prepared and prepare people for what might happen. Early palliative care, that principle, has been shown to improve quality of life, improve people's mood, and interestingly and surprisingly, improve survival. This was an American study in people with lung cancer. And we've done the same. Irene Higginson and her group have done it here in the UK, showing that early integration of palliative care with a breathlessness control service improves outcome. And look at this, the gap's widening. These people are living longer and they're living better. And interestingly, there was no difference in cost. But in order to provide care for people, we have to communicate with them well. So my colleague Nikki Pease and I uh, tried to analyse all the type of consultations that we'd done and the things that made a difference. And we came up with a six-point toolkit and it stood the test of time as just core principles. And I hope you'll feel these resonate with you and you might even want to apply them when you have conversations with somebody who's ill or who's distressed or bereaved and when you don't know what to say or what to do. So I hope you can apply these in daily life. Make sure that people are comfortable. Sit down, have a cup of tea, that magic cup of tea. Sit there, let them know that you're focusing on them. And then 
listen and let them express in their language using the words that they want to use. Don't assume anything. When you question, use open questions just to help encourage them. So what happened? So what did that make you understand? What did you understand by that? Don't put words in their mouth. Don't focus down. Don't just leave it open, very open. And then you might want to reflect back on what they've said. So you, an example might be, so you said, you said your brother was very upset by that comment? And then just wait and the rest will come. And then at the end, it's worth summarising, making sure that you have summarised what you've heard, but also what any plan is. So if you've got somebody, a friend or neighbour perhaps, who's really upset, you might end up by saying, thank you for talking to me. I feel really privileged. And you've told me what happened when your mum died. And we'll plan to have another cup of tea in a week's time. And you've summarised and you've closed the conversation. Obviously, when I'm doing it in a medical context, it's a bit more, it's a bit longer and complicated than that. But just trying to help you understand. And I use this. Um, I'm sorry the image is blurred. It's the only one that I could, uh, to, could download. Um, but this is the Chinese symbol for listening. And I think it says it all. Because we listen not only with our ears, but we listen with our eyes, with who we are. And we listen with our undivided attention. But most importantly, we listen from the heart. And people know if you're listening from the heart. Cicely said, dignity is having a sense of personal worth. People go on about saying, oh, it must be very uh, undignified if you have any incontinence or whatever. Well, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I'm sure everybody in the audience over the age of 65 will have leaked a bit at some time. <laughs> That's why Tina and all those other pads have got such high sales figures. Doesn't make you any less of a person, doesn't make you any less important. They're things that just happen, they're bodily functions. Women have periods, sometimes it soaks through things. Doesn't stop you being, doesn't mean you're undignified. It's just a nuisance and you hope people will help you out. But what about if you don't want to carry on with treatment? There is no law against stopping treatment. You cannot be treated against your will. If you are being treated for something and you say you don't want any more, enough is enough, you cannot be treated against your will. Certainly if you're unconscious in the street, people may come and try and resuscitate you because they don't know any better, so they default to life. And they may then find in your pocket that you have an advanced decision to refuse treatment that says you don't want cardiopulmonary resuscitation. And that can be quite difficult for the ambulance men, but people will try and respect it. You cannot be treated against your will. So when we're deciding about a treatment anyway, we're weighing up risks and burdens against the potential benefits of whatever we do. And if the risks and burdens on this side outweigh the benefits, then you shouldn't be carrying on with an intervention 
because it's doing more harm than good and you stop. Let's take the situation of someone with motor neurone disease who's on a ventilator. The ventilator has been keeping them alive and they get to the point where they say, actually, I've got all these aids in place or whatever, but I just want to stop now. I've had enough. And you decide with them, yep, they understand, and you're going to stop the ventilation. You put all care in place. We've got very, very good guidelines now in palliative care. Exactly what to do, how to look after people, stop their ventilation, and they will die fairly soon afterwards, peacefully, gently, with symptoms controlled, because they're dying of their disease that they would have died of months or sometimes years before if they hadn't had ventilation in place. When I went to medical school, there was no um, what we call nippy, non-invasive, positive pressure ventilation, ventilation through a mask that people can have at home or through a, na a nasal cannula that people have at home. It didn't exist, but it does now. And so, as well as managing starting it, we've had to learn how to manage stopping it if people don't want to carry on. Because it's a treatment, and if they withdraw their consent, you must respect that. That is fundamentally different to giving drugs, lethal drugs, with the express intention to end life as fast as possible, irrespective of how long it would have gone on for. And you don't know how long it would have gone on for. Remember, I showed you that figure from hospitals now. We're not very good at predicting life expectancy. And that is fundamentally different. And the medication you use is fundamentally different. But interestingly, the time from drug to death, certainly looking at the Oregon data, is actually longer than with the controlled situation and stopping ventilation that I was telling you about. People say autonomy. It's my choice. I do what I want. But we are all interrelated. Some of you will have come here today with somebody else. The way that you behave towards people affects them. We are an interrelated society. And nowhere is that more evident than when we're dying. And dying isn't just the decision between a patient and a doctor about what's going to happen, where they want to be looked after, whether they want to continue treatment or not. It's not a dyad. It's actually more than that because there's a family involved. And there may be children involved too. And don't forget, for some children, the grandparents are the most important stable person in their lives. We live in a world sadly, of chaotic families. And sometimes it's the grandparent who really is the anchor point for young kids. And so, rather than it being a dyad, it's really a triad. We're all interrelated. The way that I, as a doctor, speak to a patient can either give the message that I'm so gloomy about it all that I really can't see any way forward, or it may give the message that actually I care about you and I will do all I can to improve your quality of life. And if I don't succeed first time, 
I've got a plan B and we'll try a plan C and we'll go on and I'll ask a colleague for help. And it's so important because the way a person dies lives on in the memory of those left behind. You all have your memories. I have mine. We all have them. And children need to have clear explanations and they need support before bereavement and they need support during bereavement and they need support afterwards. And the way they express their feelings is different. And I've taken these from the Child Bereavement Network. Fortunately, it's in place. Fortunately, it's there, but we don't have nearly enough resources. We only have, across England and Wales, about half of schools with somebody in the school who really has any training in managing child bereavement. And, of course, sadly, sometimes you'll have a whole school bereaved. Uh, it really struck me not that long ago when there was the Grenfell Tower disaster and my grandsons are at a school where some of the victims had been on the staff of that school. And the whole school was bereaved and devastated. And the poor headmaster was finding it quite difficult. And then he also had the situation of a child in the school who died and really wasn't sure the best way to handle that. And I tried to give him a bit of support and guidance and I think it was respectful and respected the children who were grieving for their classmate. But why do people decide that they want to end their life? If we look at the data that's come from Oregon, where they've had 21 years' experience of physician-assisted suicide, it really isn't about pain. That's quite minor. It's about fear that the future will be worse than today. Fear of losing dignity, losing control, losing so-called autonomy. Fear of being a burden. Things that might happen in the future. People talk about a right to die. I'd love to have a right to not die. Every one of us is going to die. There is 100% mortality. But what we're talking about is, are you going to license doctors or somebody else to assist suicide or inject lethal drugs? In Oregon, they have physician-assisted suicide. In the Netherlands, they've been much more... Honest, I think, in the way that they've titled their legislation, termination of life on request and assisted suicide. And they have the same in Belgium and now Canada's made legislation uh, where they have euthanasia as well. And I'm just going to show you a little bit of data from the official reports from these places. But before I do that, I just want you to think about what do you need to make a decision? What happens when the person says they just want to die? Well, if you're going to take a decision, any decision, you need accurate information, you need the mental capacity to take that decision, and it must be voluntary. So let's think about the information about being terminally ill. Well, I was on the select committee that looked at Lord Joffey's bill when that came before us, and I was shocked to hear from the pathologists that 5% of post-mortems reveal a diagnostic error. And of course, prognosis 
is notoriously inaccurate. It's a probabilistic art. My biggest prognostic error was when I, a consultant surgeon, consultant oncologist and the patient's GP, all thought the patient was going to be dead in three months. He was a young man and he was actually desperate for somebody to tell him how to kill himself, terrified of what lay ahead with difficult pain and a huge amount of distress and small children. Well, fast forwards, 11 years later, his wife died. And he has brought up the children on his own brilliantly. And he is still alive today. I've had a text message from him about a couple of weeks ago. And he's living at home independently. It's a long time from 1991 to today. And we all thought he was going to be dead in three months. What about capacity to make your own decisions? Well, mental capacity looks simple, but there are lots of things that impair your thinking, including medication. A lot of the drugs that we use to control disease have got psychological side effects. Those of you that have ever taken steroids, for example, may have noticed that you become quite emotional, weepy when you watch the news on the television. It's as if your emotional thermostat has gone off a bit. Some of the pain-relieving drugs certainly can impair your, your decision-making. Some people can feel depressed, others can feel euphoric. People are cognitively impaired. And, of course, depression is linked to a desire for death, feeling a burden, and depression and hopelessness are mutually reinforcing independent factors for a desire for death. Interestingly, in Oregon where their legislation requires that somebody has the mental uh, capacity to decide, has shown that one in six of people who'd cleared the hurdles in a small study actually had undiagnosed clinical depression. And the summary of that paper from Ganzini show, said the current practice of the Death with Dignity Act may not adequately protect all mentally ill patients. There are real difficulties about assessing capacity. It's not straightforward. But the one that worries me the most is voluntariness. Because we really can't detect the pressures that may be on someone behind closed doors, internal or external. Fear of being a burden, fear that possibly everyone would be relieved, fear of financial cost as well, of being ill, and people have a fluctuating desire for death. People will feel that they don't want to carry on. And then weeks, months later, will say, I never believed I could enjoy life so much again. As they adapt to the situation they find themselves in. And I'm afraid the doctor's attitude, as I've already said, I think does influence the way patients feel. And society does as well. And unfortunately, we know that intra-family fraud is rife. Only about 1% of it's ever reported. We know that in this country, elder abuse, sadly, is rife. And we as doctors don't pick it up. We miss it. I have been taken in by families, and so have many of my colleagues. Most families, fortunately, are loving and caring, but not all are, and it's really difficult to detect what's going on. So the person who says, I just want to die, 
Well, I hope people always respond by checking out whether somebody is sure and by listening. But if you process that request, you're giving a subliminal message that you're right to think you'd be better off dead. I, a doctor, agree with you. I think you're right. And of course, my knowledge base, because of experience and knowledge, is always going to be outweighing yours as the patient. There is a power differential that however much you try to get rid of it, you can't. And that gives it the stamp of medical beneficence, really. But what I have to do, because I can't go down that road, it stays my hand, the law at the moment. I have to say, what is making today so terrible? What can we do to improve today? Back to narrowing that gap I showed you about. And sometimes it's hard work and it means redoubling efforts. And often it's about the little things in life. It's the little things, what, things that appear trivial, which are the things that actually really get people down and you need to sort out. And the message is that you are worth me working hard to improve things, however small, whatever we do. Because laws have a social dynamic. So they're not just regulatory instruments, they send social messages. Think about the smoking legislation. I was involved in uh, that going through, and I'm very proud of all we've done over tobacco control in this country. It's been pretty dramatic. But changing the law actually sent a much more powerful social message than even I had expected would happen over stopping smoking in public places. So what happens when you change the law in this way? Well, you do give a stamp of beneficence. But with euthanasia, or PAE, physician-administered euthanasia, the patient is the passive recipient, and I think it widens that power differential, differential further that I spoke about. And an assisted dying law conveys the message that if you're terminally ill, it's appropriate to consider ending your life. It's perhaps something you ought to think about. So what's happened in Oregon? This is the latest data. It's only just come out. This graph is from their official report. <coughs> Includes last year's data. There's been a rise in the prescriptions written for lethal drugs. And there's been a rise in the deaths reported from lethal drugs. Interestingly, we really don't know what happens to those prescriptions dispensed but not taken which I find quite worrying. And we don't know what's happened in these consultations. It has been described uh, as a leaky boat because the Oregon legislation talks about the person uh, having a six-month prognosis. But actually, when Fabian Stahler questioned what this really means, he was told that it's based on an assumption that the illness takes its course without further treatment. So every insulin-dependent diabetic would automatically become eligible under this because if they stop their insulin, they're unlikely to live six months. And yet you wouldn't think of them as normally terminally ill. So this does seem a very flexible and loose interpretation, but that's their official interpretation. So what does the 21 years data show? And you can go and find the reports on, their, on the Oregon Health Department website. 
Well, the time to death was really variable from one minute to 104 hours. It's quite a long time after someone's taken lethal drugs. The average varied and it depended on what type of lethal cocktail was used. Some seemed to be a little bit faster than others. But even the lowest average at uh, 97 minutes seemed to be quite long, I thought. Uh, given that actually when we're taking, going back to the situation of someone with motor neurone disease, um, we take them off a ventilator and look after them as they're dying, uh, the average time to death is around 35 minutes. So it's much shorter and gentler. And that's when you've got people there making sure that you're controlling any symptom that emerges and dealing with anything that happens while they're dying. Interestingly, eight people awoke again, and it seems that none of them went on to take a second overdose. They, stay, they then went on to die of their underlying disease. But I do worry about this figure, which uh, is that one doctor wrote 35 prescriptions in a year. That seems an awful lot, particularly as many doctors in Oregon won't have anything to do with this. Quite a few obviously wrote one, but this does seem to be a lot. And we know from the campaign groups there that if a doctor isn't willing uh, to, to provide lethal drugs, they will act as a broker to put someone in touch with somebody who will. Now, this would translate... Remember, Oregon's a small state and the UK's got quite a big population. <laughs> it would translate on a population basis to about 2,500 deaths a year in the UK. I just want to tell you about Barbara Wagner, though. Her story was in their paper. She was a 64-year-old bus driver, a school bus driver with lung cancer. And she had been prescribed palliative chemotherapy, but then she got a letter to say that her Oregon health plan stated the chemotherapy was not covered, but her assisted suicide drugs were 100% covered as a comfort care measure. I can understand her feeling really very angry about that. And she was quite young as well. Uh, what about Belgium? Well, Belgium is an interesting country because, of course, it's got two populations. It, it's got Wallonia and it's got Flanders. And the numbers are different, even though the population size as well is different. But the overall numbers across Belgium have been rising since they changed their law quite steeply. These are the ones that are reported. There are anecdotal reports that a lot aren't reported because it's quite burdensome for doctors to fill out all the forms and report after the event. So the numbers may be much higher, but this certainly is the minimum happening there. This was a story that troubled me recently. I don't know how many of you have seen Aurelia Brose. She was 29 and uh, she was in, in the Netherlands, and she had euthanasia. And during the last two weeks of her life, she was often distressed and self-harmed. And she said, I'm stuck in my own body, my own head. I just want to be free. I have never been happy. I don't know the concept of happiness. And from their official reports, 83 people now have been euthanized on grounds of psychiatric suffering in 2017. I really worry about people like this young girl, self-harming, 
almost certainly previously abused. And when you go back to the official reports, there certainly are cases who had been subject to abuse in childhood, particularly sexual abuse, and who then went on to have euthanasia. And there were some with learning difficulties, and I published a paper looking at those as a small cohort. But the notifications in the Netherlands are interesting because they thought that they'd plateaued in the first years after their legislation, but now the numbers have gone up quite a lot. And these numbers would translate to tenfold the Oregon numbers. 25,000 deaths in the UK on a population basis. And it has been said that euthanasia has become the default way to die of cancer at times in the Netherlands. Some people have been worried about it. Bernard van Barsen resigned from the regulator committee because uh, she felt there was a major shift in the interpretation of the country's euthanasia law and uh, to endorse lethal injections for increasing numbers of people with dementia. There has been a prosecution of one case, the only one that I'm aware of that has proceeded to a prosecution hearing, where the doctor covertly drugged a woman. She had previously said that she wanted to be euthanized. Um, when, the t when I think the time is right, she'd said. But later on, she said, but not just now. And people do go on to change their mind, of course. Uh, but her family uh, apparently as assisted the doctor in holding her while the lethal drugs were injected. And it has been said, and I, my personal view is I agree quite strongly with it, that overruling the wishes of incompetent patients to live um, is extremely serious because the will to live is a basic fundamental right. Indeed, Article 2 in human rights is the right to life. Um, what's happened in Canada? Well, Canada has its medical aid in uh, dying law, which has just gone through. Quite a lot of doctors in Canada are extremely worried about it and very angry about the way that it has gone through uh, and describe that there are already pressures to expand that legislation to mental illness, mature minors, and to people issuing an advanced directive, rather like that woman uh, who I was telling you about, who's, where the prosecution proceeded against the doctor. And their numbers as well have been escalating. It's quite difficult to collate all their numbers because different provinces uh, have different reporting systems. So they're not collated in the same way nationally. Uh, is it a cost-saving measure? Well, there's been publications from Canada um, suggest this year suggesting uh, the estimates of cost savings really run into potentially over 100 million Canadian dollars. Um, it has been estimated in America there are major cost savings because, of course, if people don't live so long and don't access care, then you're saving there. And it was suggested many years ago that this might be what happened, and I put the quote on that slide. Uh, in Canada, Roger Foley uh, went to court to try to get his disability support arrangements funded uh, because they had been denied uh, and he was concerned because he was free to pursue a medically assisted death but couldn't get clinically assisted living. He needed uh, adaptations to carry on living. And the disability group there 
have quoted the vulnerable person standard because they are worried that um, the decisions are not appropriately grounded in effective communication, especially for patients who have disabilities that affect their communication, either physical or expressive disabilities of different types that mean that they can't communicate so easily. Uh, there's been a recent survey here, both in the College of Physicians and the radiologists uh, surveyed their oncologists. So these, this is from the people looking after cancer patients, this data. And they had a 34% respo response rate, which actually for a survey, for a poll, is fairly high. Uh, I mean, one would always like it to be nearer 60%, but sometimes surveys end up at being between 5 or 10%. So this is quite a reasonable number. Um, and less than a quarter of the oncologists, and don't forget, these are people treating cancers of every type firsthand and seeing the difficulties for patients with malignant disease, potentially. Uh, less than a quarter would be prepared uh, to participate actively should the law change, regardless of whether they support or oppose a change in the law. So what about the law? Well, the law is there to protect the vulnerable. There's a lot of discussion all the time in the campaign group. It's a very active campaigning that the law here should change to allow so-called assisted dying. And it's difficult to know quite what is meant by that because it seemed the definition seems to change between physician-assisted suicide, where the patient takes their lethal drugs, or euthanasia, where they put their arm out or whatever and are injected with lethal drugs. But I think you do have to ask the question of what changes in society and in the way care is delivered around a change in the law. Where is the Rubicon in relation to mental illness? Suicide prevention, what happens to suicide prevention policies? such as that young girl I showed you. Uh, dementia, post-abuse and chronic illness. And I think it's a societal issue, not a medical issue. And my personal feeling is that I go along with that, those doctors, more than three quarters of them, who feel this is not part of clinical care. This is not part of our duty of care to patients. Parliament was not convinced it would be safe when it last came before Parliament. This was the House of Commons in 2015. Well, whatever you feel about the House of Commons now, uh, I think you have to remember that that vote was taken in a time of much more political stability overall when they did go into the issue in detail and they were concerned that it just wasn't safe and could have unintended consequences. But what about dying? I want to go back for a moment. Think of the beginning of that graph to all those infections, and you rightly pointed out penicillin. Penicillin in the war was a wonder drug. So many people survived who would not have survived. But now there's drug resistance. Drug resistant to antibiotics is emerging at a horrifying rate. And when we look at how we are likely to be dying tomorrow, I'm worried that we're going to go back. Remember all those green boxes on those graphs I showed you at the beginning? 
that will be back to people dying of infection. Already, sepsis is a big problem. 25,000 children each year in the UK are seriously ill through sepsis. And sepsis kills five people an hour in the UK now. And we have antibiotics that usually still work. And this is from the uh, sepsis uh, website. Uh, just the signs, but sepsis is missed far too often or doesn't respond to antibiotics already. If we look at E. coli, a common bug around, uh, often responsible for sepsis, resistance is emerging at a horrific rate. And along the bottom here, although you can't see it very clearly, um, and is uh, the countries Australia, India, South Africa, United Kingdom, United States, and the amount of drug resistance, the percentage of E. coli resistant. Look at this from India, though. Lots and lots of resistant E. coli around. And these are all the antibiotics in our armamentarium to deal with it. Really worrying picture emerging. Look at this dark, 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 dark areas where antibiotic resistance has really taken hold. And we are going grey on that picture. And why? Because in many parts of the world, antibiotics are available easily over the counter. They are counterfeit ones. They get packaged up and sold. The doses are variable. And infection control as well is difficult when you've got very overcrowded hospitals like this. This poor gentleman looks desperately ill. But look how close the beds are together. How do you stop cross-infection in that type of environment anyway? It becomes difficult. Now, it's important to remember it isn't the person who becomes resistant to the antibiotic. It's the bug. The bug mutates and changes, so it develops a resistance so it isn't killed by the antibiotic. And that's why this is a global problem, because those black, very dark areas on the map that I showed you are where these antibiotic-resistant bugs are particularly prevalent, but don't forget we've got a lot as well, and cross-infection and so on is rife. Just think when you're on the underground here in London in the rush hour, you're closer to people around you than you probably are to your spouse most of the time. I mean, you really are alarmingly close to people. Um, infection control is really difficult uh, to manage. Think of getting on an aeroplane, all that recycled air. You may be up there for six hours rebreathing all this recycled air. So the prediction is that by 2050, the deaths attributable to antimicrobial resistance will be huge, particularly in Africa. Remember that slide at the beginning, the dark red of HIV in Africa and across Asia, but Europe, pretty bad too, and North America. So I do worry that what we're facing ahead of us is going to be a much bigger problem about dying in the world. 
because deaths from infection are sudden, they strike people down at any age in life, there is no time for planning, there is no time for us to provide the input that we currently can when we're predicting somebody is going downhill, but there are things that we can do to improve their quality of life. And that actually we may look back, I know it's very depressing to think about it, but we may look back and think that we lived in a golden era where we had these wonder drugs available. And don't forget that we have the wonder drugs of pain relief and so on available as well. So we do live in very special times and we have a duty of care to everybody to do everything we can to make sure they know they matter until the last moment of their lives. Thank you.